Blog Talk Radio. Revolution, featuring your host, Heisey Ludmer. And welcome to Revolution. Thank you for joining us once again this month for our monthly revolutionary exploration of life and the mysteries. My name is Heisey, your host, and for this first segment with our roundtable discussion, I am joined by my fellow co-hosts, Mildred Lynn McDonald. Hello, Heisey. And John Carousella. Hi, Heisey. Hello. And for the topic of this month's roundtable, I wanted to um, just bring something that I feel has perhaps gotten very lost or at least very diluted in our modern society and culture, and that is the idea of reverence. Um, I think that we often think about reverence as something that is old-fashioned or that we would see in older cultures or in olden times. But it's hard to really point to much in our modern society that seems to exemplify reverence and the act of giving reverence, being in reverence to, and it seems as if a lot has gotten lost in this desire to to make everything ironic, to try to make everything inclusive and everyone equal and that kind of thing. And before you send letters... I'm not meaning that everyone is not equal, (laughs) Um, but in the sense that there are mysteries, forces, deities, whatever it is, however you see the cosmology of the universe, there are things that are just greater than us, and when we come into contact with them, they feel greater than us. But I don't know that we necessarily engage in the same kind of practice that brings a sense of being in reverence to them. Uh, that perhaps people previously might have done. So I wanted to first start with a question for my co-hosts here and just ask, when you hear that word reverence, um, you know, what does that mean to you? Because I think a lot of these words like reverence, piety, etc., have a lot of baggage associated with them for how they have been used and often misconstrued or misportrayed through various ideologies and dogmas and religions and that kind of thing. Um, so I'm curious to hear from you when you hear that word reverence, what does that mean to you? Well, hi, see, I love your topic, first of all. And I rarely use the word reverence, but when I do say it, I really like it. And for me, it's a sense of deep respect sprinkled with awe. When I'm saying awe, I mean the mystery of life, and it almost takes your breath away as if you're standing by a sunset or standing up by the ocean or you see a baby being born. That's what it means to me. I I get um, – I actually also don't use the term very, very frequently. And my take is a little different, and I'm, I'm sort of wondering about it as I, as I think and talk about it with you guys. Reverence to me – I feel reverence 
when I'm confronted by something very delicate and very special. It's almost like um, at the same time that I'm called that I'm called to feel very protective of something. I am I have this feeling of reverence well up in me, especially if if it's something beautiful um, and rare. So I don't think of reverence in the way that most religious contexts tend to invite us to experience reverence. I it's it's kind of really um, not godly, but but uh, very earthly to me for some reason. It's, it's curious. If we look at the root of the word. Um, the the Greek word that it comes from meant good or healthy fear. Uh, the Latin word that the English word um, derives from uh, implies respect and fear. So I'm wondering when you think about that word, two questions. One, do you ever think about a, a, a type of fear being associated with or a part of reverence? And two, why do you think it is that it's not a word that you think of or that you use very often? Well, hi, C. I have to say for myself, I never think of fear in relation to reverence. And I, don't, I also don't associate reverence with religion. So when I was preparing for our time together today, I found a beautiful verse by um, John O'Donohue from his book, Beauty, the Invisible Embrace. And when I read this, it captures the essence of what reverence means to me apart from the fear. And if you wouldn't mind, I'll just read it out. What you encounter, recognize, or discover depends to a large degree on the quality of your approach. Many of the ancient cultures practiced careful rituals of approach. An encounter of depth and spirit was preceded by careful preparation. When we approach with reverence, great things decide to approach us. Our real life comes to the surface and its light awakens the concealed beauty in things. When we walk on the earth with reverence, beauty will decide to trust us. The rushed heart and the arrogant mind lack the gentleness and the patience to enter that embrace. So that's what reverence means to me. And when I read this, there wasn't a fear component there. Do you think that perhaps fear in this sense may be that if somebody goes through what you just described in that poem, that they have a fear of those aspects of themselves coming to the surface and coming to light for them to have to face and deal with as part of the process that they're going through to be reverent towards something else? Oh, I absolutely agree. And when you were speaking, what was coming to me is that people are afraid of their own life. And that can be a terrifying experience, coming to terms with that, meeting your potential, meeting your greatness on life's path. So I could see fear being used in that context. Absolutely. I think that that's important in that definition of the Greek word when they say it's, it means healthy fear. And, and what you just described is a healthy fear because it's the willingness to face that, accept that, move into that, step into that. You know, that's, that's a healthy thing, even though we may feel fearful to do so. If we do it, 
then we will find that it was a healthy fear which motivated us or was a catalyst for us to then evolve or, or move upward in our own being. Mm -hmm. And John, do you, um, well, one, do you associate any aspect of the concept of fear when you think of reverence? And two, why do you think it is that perhaps you don't use that word or think about that word very often? Well, yeah, again, this comes at me. I really liked Mildred Lynn, the, the John O'Donohue uh, uh, quote that you offered, because it, reverence for me really is about this, this gentleness, this gentle approach. And if I experience fear, it really is a fear that I would hurt something, that I would damage something. That, and And that damage might be um, to the thing itself uh, that somehow my clumsiness would create a disturbance or would destroy or damage that particular, that, that moment, that mood, that, that condition. Um, so it isn't, it's not, the, it's not the fear of trembling and quaking in the presence of greatness. It's the fear of clumsiness in the presence of something special and rare. And I think perhaps I don't um, use the word or, or think about the word that often. Um, it might be because I'm clumsy, <laughs> you know? uh, but it also might be because I don't find myself approaching or being in the presence of something that is, um, that delicate that often, uh, you know, at the same time, I mean, I, I guess I have a feeling of, um, I'm impressed and awed by the beauty of the ocean and the mountains and, uh, the wildflowers and so on and so forth. Um, but there's something different about those, I'll call them everyday experiences that, that reflect more gratitude, excitement, and joy um, than the delicate approach of reverence for me. So do either of you feel that perhaps in our modern day society that we seem to have gotten disconnected from or forgotten how to be reverent and, and what it can feel like to be in a, a full state of reverence? I see. I think we have. I thought a lot about this question, and my first idea was, you know, how society now different from past times? But when I read the John O'Donohue quote, what he was saying is the approach, the quality of the approach is so important in the context of reverence. So I was thinking about most people and everybody really we have so much information blasted at us every day from so many different sources it's really hard to create that space where you can be in an appropriate energy state to recognize or even accept or welcome a state of reverence so that's kind of where i'm going with with your question a lot of people have a sense of urgency or scarcity or something's not enough or maybe even fear fear used in a different way and i would have to 
throw out there, where does one find the time to practice reverence? Uh, that's a that's a good way to think about it, Mildred Lynn. When and where does one have the time or space to practice reverence? I think we suffer from this intensity of life um, and and because it's so so nerve jangling, we tend to numb ourselves uh, to to a lot of it uh, frankly um, and the this this uh, this delicate encounter that I feel is the sort of the source of of the the upwelling of reverence in me really has to be uh, sought out and embraced when you are willing to devote yourself to it. You know, it's not. It's it doesn't just you don't. I don't think we stumble across moments of reverence. Uh, so much as we have to actively seek them out. And I I think we're too busy and too numb. Well, and I think that what both of you have said brings up an important point as well. And this also goes to, I think, a lot of modern society, is there's a tendency to look at everything external to be what it is that's supposed to trigger or bring to us or stimulate in us or cultivate in us something. And what I've heard from both of you is that reverence think is something that is it's a state of being that comes from within us, that whether it's an attitude or a way of acting or whatever, that we bring to something rather than it being reliant on something outside of us to somehow create or stimulate reverence. And so this there has to be a willingness within a person to say, I'm going to cultivate reverence and see and come to things with a state of reverence. And it doesn't have to be big things like when I walk in a cathedral, I'm going to be reverent. You know, it's also cultivating that being of reverence so that when you stand in front of a stranger, you are able to have respect and in some ways that healthy fear that says, I'm able to see this full and great and amazing potential in you and it almost blinds me even if you can't see it for yourself. And so therefore I am going to, just like with the term namaste, you know, which says I honor the jewel within you that is the jewel within me, or you'll hear different ways of saying that. But um, it, it, that to me I think is, is a, a type of reverence that is a daily practice of reverence. And I think that's what we can cultivate and what we need to think about is not looking to something outside of us to bring us into a state of reverence, but for us to be willing to cultivate that and then be in that state of reverence from within ourselves towards the things that are outside of us, hopefully at some point at all times. Um, But even if it's just, you know, one little thing, stop for a moment and say, okay, how do I go into this with a little more reverence, a little more respect, a little more awe, simply in the fact that it exists rather than taking it for granted, or going in and saying, okay, now dazzle me, entertain me, show me how great you are, and then I'll be reverent. What I see, the, the, the fact that the, the word comes with um, this connotation of presence of healthy fear, what do, you, what do you make of the fear part of that? 
Well, I think it's just fear in the sense of when we are when we are faced with something that is bigger or that we feel is greater than us, we can feel intimidated. We can feel challenged by it. Like, you know, how do I, how, how could I possibly become that? Uh, you know, we think there's no way to, but of course that's denying our own potential. But I think it's it's that idea of fear. And it's healthy because that becomes a motivation that says, you know, it's just like somebody having a role model. It becomes a motivation to say, I may come from this kind of background, but I see somebody else that came from this background and they've be, been able to create this, become this, or do this. I'm afraid of how I might have to go about getting to that because I don't know if I'm up for the challenges. I don't know how I'm going to get the school education. I don't know how this or that is going to happen. But it stimulates me to push through that fear and the fear becomes the thing that motivates me to want to prove to myself, if not to other people, that I can do this, that I can accomplish this, that I can reach that level. Hmm. Yeah, that, that part of the, the definition uh, doesn't resonate with me very much. Uh, I And I don't think it's because I don't respect things that are greater than myself. I think it's that if something is greater than myself, then I don't feel like fear is the appropriate response for me. It's like if it's greater well, than me, then I would think that it that it, uh, I think this is a limitation of translation. You know, because this is trying to find I mean we find it like in Buddhism you find this all the time it's challenging trying to translate Sanskrit into English words and then still with the English word be able to mm -hmm. maintain the fullness of the concept that the Sanskrit word has. And so here it may be a similar thing where we translate it to healthy fear, but if we knew the Greek, we would understand the more subtle understanding of the definition, and that mm -hmm. may then, you know, help to understand that better. So, you know, I, that I just wanted to toss in because I think it may also just be part of the word in English, fear, has been associated to the translation of these foreign words but may not really grasp the subtle concepts behind what is meant in those words in their original language. Yeah, John, I just looked at fear, what the definition of fear is, and it's talking about to be afraid of something that could be dangerous, painful, or threatening. And I remember when I first realized in that split second, when I realized that the whole medical health model that I was trained in was limiting, and there was an extremely open expanse of energy out there. And at that moment, I was terrified because this knowledge, once I had become aware of it, I couldn't, I couldn't un uncoil the string, so to speak, but I did view it as dangerous. Oh, my God, what does this mean? What's this going to do to my life? It was painful because I felt I had limited myself to one model, and it was very threatening because it was going to threaten my whole belief system. So I can understand, and was it the best thing that ever happened to me? You bet. <laughs> so it, I would say it was a healthy fear, but I remember that second. And mm -hmm. I think that could be the type of healthy fear that High C is alluding to, and maybe that's what's captured in the Greek definition, the more expansive symbolism of the healthy fear. So what is it for each of you that 
stimulates or cultivates or causes you to have an experience of reverence and what would you suggest that we might be able to do to reconnect with and and expand our awareness of being in a state of reverence on an individual level well for for me these moments of encounter as as i said earlier these moments of encountering delicate beauty are and and vulnerability encountering vulnerability really is a powerful conjurer of of um reverence for me when when something is willing to expose itself to me that is that is awe inspiringly beautiful but also very delicate uh that vulnerability makes me feel very a deep very deep sense of reverence and is that it happens also um when I experience deep gratitude for a gift, right? When I get a gift from from spirit or a gift from nature, and I think, I mean, I'll I'll say, I recognize how special that is, how uh, how easily I might have missed it, you know, if I hadn't been paying attention or uh, if my attitude hadn't been quite right. I, I you know, these ideas, um, revelations. Uh, experiences of of the divine to me are so delicate and and rarefied that if I'm not if I'm not on my game I'll miss them and so when I do catch them I'm like wow it's just I'm so humbled by the moment of the experience so what, so that's what brings it to me so so what do you think you could do to bring a state of awareness and reverence, uh, to bring a state of reverence into your awareness so that you're the one that is bringing it to things rather than it being something that happens to you? Well, I, I guess um, the, the primary experience within myself would be gratitude. When I when I can approach each moment with gratitude and that, that deep gratitude opens me up to the opportunity for reverence. Although the experience of that gratitude isn't the same as reverence for me, because I guess I don't feel them as, as in this vulnerable state. So the, the, emotion that I would label reverence doesn't well up in me. Gratitude, respect, but reverence isn't quite the right word for how it feels. But I think if I am willing to be filled with gratitude and notice the delicate things, then I'm, then I'm more likely to, to find reverence in, in my day. Yeah. And Mildred, what is it that stimulates reverence in you and how do you think we as individuals can cultivate being more in a state of reverence that we bring to everything in our lives rather than it just being something dependent on the external coming or happening to us? Well, I go back to John Donahue's quality of your approach and that really resonated with me because one thing that I hold in great reverence is the energy work that I do. 
And I noticed and I, and I observed in myself that because I have great reverence and respect for this whole world, the energy world, I make sure that I show up in a good way. And you could even take that a little step further and perform a ritual, um, a set of, of things that you may do to help you show up in a good and consistent way. And the other thing I noticed in terms of reverence, and I'm using that specific example, is that when I'm showing up in a good way, when I'm making a quality approach, my heartbeat slows down, the mind chatter goes away. I don't have much mind chatter. I have a lot of vacant rooms in there, but distractions go away. And I can almost feel myself pulling in and showing up in a way to honor the reverence. So if you were going to ask me, how do you develop more reverence in your life? My first thing would be is to recognize the pollution of clutter, mental and otherwise (laughs) emotional, that you're carrying around, and bring yourself through breath work to a state of openness. And then observe where you're experiencing reverence right now in your life. And then take where you're experiencing reverence and look at that against your your internal compass, what's important to you, and then use that as a starting point. And Heisey, I'm sure you must have lots of good references for for developing a good way of being or a good ritual to put in place so that you can show up in a good way. Uh, Well, I think that a key phrase that you've used um, many times there is showing up. Because sometimes the cultivation and generation of it is just, it's an ongoing thing and it's not going to happen if we try to just do it once and think that's enough versus we just do it over and over again and not thinking it has to be something grand. It can just be as simple as showing up to the meditation cushion every morning and sitting there even if it's for a couple of minutes. It could be lighting a candle and having words of affirmation that you say that remind you to be in a state of reverence towards all that you meet and all that you see in a given day. Um, It can be taking initiative to get out in nature so that you are in something that is bigger than just constructed buildings and man-made streets to be reminded of things that are bigger than us that we're a part of and can connect to rather than seeing it as something that is separate or something to be controlled by us in a small little park versus being out in something that is actual, uh, just growing on its own and kind of free open space. So for me, those are the kind of things that can help cultivate that, but it's the showing up in in the willingness to do it and showing up over and over again that's going to help it to become something that we're able to maintain and be in a constant state of rather than something that is a a momentary experience um, that often is triggered by something external versus something that we're bringing into every situation, encounter that we have in our life. So I would like to reverently thank my co-host, Uh, and extend gratitude for having shown up here today and uh, taken some time to talk about this subject. So my thanks to Mildred Lynn McDonald. Great topic, Heisey. Thank you. And to John Carousella. Uh, So great pleasure. Thanks. And stay tuned for the rest of this revolutionary show. 
If you'd like to find out more about me or about my offerings as a reader, ritualist, and magic consultant, you can visit my website at tarotbyhighc.net or by email highc.tarotbyhighc.net. Coming up next on Revolution with High C will be my conversation with nationally recognized feminist voice in modern goddess-based spirituality, Eric Dupree, about the recently published anthology that he curated titled Finding the Masculine in Goddesses Spiral, Men in Ritual, Service, and Community to the Goddess. So stay tuned, sit back, relax, have a nice cup of tea, and we'll be right back with more Revolution. Listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers. Find out more at Facebook.com/slash Revolution with Heisey. Enjoy the show. My revolutionary guest this month is writer, yoga teacher, facilitator, and feminist voice in goddess spirituality, Eric Dupree, editor of the recently published anthology, Finding the Masculine in Goddesses Spiral, Men in Ritual, Service, and Community to the Goddess, a collection of essays that reaches across faith praxis to bring together pagans, heathens, Buddhists, polytheists, and monists in a diverse tapestry of sacred masculine stories, rituals, and poetry that empower the rich dialogue that men are having about their sacred experience with the feminine divine. This anthology contains contributions from Christopher Penzak, Blake Octavian Blair, David Salisbury, Storm Fairywolf, Orion Foxwood, Taylor Elwood, Devin Hunter, Lou Flores, and more. Eric Dupree is a nationally recognized feminist voice in modern goddess-based spirituality, a published writer and facilitator on reclaiming the divine sacredness within. Eric teaches on the intersection of sexuality, masculinity, and the goddess and matrifocal community. Eric currently writes Alone in Her Presence: Reflections and Rituals to the Goddess, a nationally read column hosted at Pathios.com. His writings on the divine feminine and matrifocal ecofeminism have been featured across numerous publications, including The Wild Hunt, Huffington Post, Tricycle, A Buddhist Review, Pagan Square, Yoganonymous, and in several anthologies. As an author, his titles include Alone in Her Presence, Meditations on the Goddess, as well as Weaving Moonlight, Lunar Mysteries, Meditations, and Magic for the Soul. In addition to being editor of the recently published anthology Finding the Masculine in Goddesses Spiral by Amanian Press, Eric's writings have also been included in anthologies such as Rooted in the Body, Seeking the Soul, and Bringing Race to the Table. 
A lover of stories, myths, and legends, Eric obtained his graduate degree in comparative literature from Queen's University. You can learn more about Eric and his writings, his services, his teachings, and his offerings at ericdupree.com, which is E-R-I-C-K-D-U-P-R-E-E.com. So please join me in welcoming this month's revolutionary guest, Eric Dupree. Welcome, Eric Dupree. Thank you very much for joining me here today for Revolution. It is a pleasure to have you here on the show in this fine month of May. Thank you for having me. Uh, so the the impetus for inviting you on the show is the recent publication of your new book compilation, I suppose it is, um, entitled Finding the Masculine in Goddesses Sp- Spiral, Men in Ritual, Service, and Community to the Goddess. Uh, so I think if we can, because there are terms in there that sometimes can prick up people's ears or perhaps even get them a little prickly <laughs> about certain topics, um, can you maybe just start with giving us a sense of how you are using the terms masculine, and if you want to include feminine there so we understand how you define those two, as well as what you mean when you say goddess. So you're the first person to ask me that, Um, especially the masculine part. So I really appreciate that you've asked that question. And I think what will delight readers and those listening today is that Masculine is defined in the book differently by every contributor. So I didn't give the writers a definition of masculine. Um, That said, the contributors of the book are people who identify gender-wise with a masculine identity. That's not to say that they identify as male-bodied, cis-male-gendered, or trans-man, but that they have a a masculinized concept of who they might be. And I think what I mean by that is they identify in some way and in some being um, with a westernized framework of how society has placed them in the world with hmm, a role that says you might be father, you might be son, you might be brother, you might be lover, you might be protector, you might be guardian. And those are these archetypes. And so they come into the book and they, they write about an experience in relationship to goddess. Who they are as a person is widely varied. And in two instances, and I'll let it unfold and let those people identify themselves on their own terms, but two people 
actually began their journey um, in the writing process as, um, I will say, genderqueer. And one person now um, is transitioned to um, gender identified as female. So I don't want to use the binary of masculine as male or female or something like that, but more of a resonance of archetypes that are often perceived as um, westernized uh, male bodies. Does that make sense? Or does that sound confusing? No, no, that that, that makes sense. Um, and I, because I find myself sometimes also, you know, even in, in simple interactions with people like, say, um, uh, charging a crystal under the sun or the moon, and you describe charging the sun as being a more masculine energy as in terms of the archetypal idea of masculine energy versus being active and that kind of thing. You know, so it makes it makes perfect sense. It's just delineating that because I know that even when you announced this book that you were going to do, um, it seemed as if there were certain reactions, pushbacks um, from people, even conflicts that might have arisen when they heard you were doing this. Uh, and I think, you know, like some people may associate the word masculine with patriarchy. So there may have been this fear that suddenly patriarchy is encroaching on the worship of the goddess just by the, the title, you know, of the book that they're going with. So what were some of the reactions and pushbacks that you got, even from the outset when you were first announcing this book and along the way um, that people were having in regards to their own conceptions around what this means in their mind versus what you were meaning and then how you were able to either bridge that and move past that or perhaps not be able to reconcile that for some people and just had to say, well, I'm moving on. Well, interestingly, I think most people, um, by and large, most people were very accepting of the idea of men just telling stories about their goddess experiences. So I want to really start just by honoring that, that most people were very inviting. And there were, at times, people who just questioned um, what was going to happen here, especially when it comes to um, how the container of goddess and goddess mystery or goddess stories were going to be told. And so um, I think... What helped was who was holding the anthology and who that person surrounded themselves with. And so that person was me. So if a different anthology was being written by a different man, and I don't know who that man would be, but say a different man who maybe isn't aligned with feminist writers or doesn't write a lot about the goddess through a matriarchal lens, or doesn't, you know, align themselves with um, Yesher Rabbit, or doesn't align themselves with Dionic tradition, or doesn't, you know, have a long history with reclaiming, or different, 
a different man might have had a totally different reaction and not have been able to have maybe held a, a threshold of saying this anthology isn't about um, taking away from women, but instead about complementing, lifting up, partnering, and holding those stories as sacred and also bridging a gap and being in community with those stories. So throughout Finding the Masculine and Goddesses Spiral, what you hear are men telling stories about how the work of Starhawk, the work of Zuzana Budapest, the work of Carol Christ, the work of Maria Gimbutas, the work of Thorn Coyle, the work of Yesha Rabbit, the work of, you know, um, the woman, I just, had a, I just forgot her name, the work of the woman who wrote Chalice in the Blade. All of these great women who paved the way for goddess mysteries to stand at the forefront, um, how their work influenced them and how that spiral touched their lives. And then they talk about their mother, their sister, their wives, their girlfriends, their, you know, best friends. And what happens is you, you see an honoring and it's, uh, it's an exchange, not an appropriation. So I think it comes from a place of, of matriarchy of honoring and celebrating and not from a place of patriarchy. And, um, and that's how I was able to, to hold that container. And at the same time, um, say when I would get the pushback and it was not a lot, but when I would get it to be able to say, no, no, this is not about patriarchy or about, taking away from, this is about honoring and celebrating. Um, which is why I had a woman write the preface to the book as a way of saying, and if, when you read her preface as a way of saying, um, we're all here because of the work you did. There's a preface to our story because the book tells, their, tells that story does that make sense? I think that that is the the real impetus there. Yes, um, and and it makes me think of something that you said. Um, you, you've said that you have come to know the goddess as the vessel vessel of our most intimate self. Right. Um, and I think that may be one important element of why this kind of book is needed. Uh, and is a important contribution to the literature around the goddess because there is, I think, very little that addresses men's roles and men's connection to and men's part in the worship and the continuation and the community of the goddess. Uh, so, you know, how how do you think uh, someone can better get in touch with and craft that vessel of their intimate self so that they can be more attuned to the goddess and not feel
feel as if it is something that has any basis in male, female, et cetera, versus being able to approach it and be in better harmony and relationship with it as as an all, because I know you often refer to the all goddess. That is uh, a great question. Um, so the tr- I think that's, that's a really great question, and I think uh, it's a hard question to answer because I think I think it's two layers, Pisces, two, two parts. One is you have to be around women. You know, you have to be around women, you know, and care about women. Well, and I think that the, the challenge has been, especially in the goddess community, that women have also separated themselves off and not allowed men a lot of times the ability. Step back. Step it back. Well, all right. Step out of goddess as paganism. Step out of goddess as as a community. And just look at all women. This is what I tell people. People ask me this question all the time. Before we can step into a community, goddess community, before I was welcomed into a woman's only, quote, unquote, goddess circle, okay, this this happened. Or before I started teaching goddess workshops, I just taught one at a national yoga conference two weekends ago. All women, 65 women and Eric. It's almost comical. Before any of that happened, women had to understand that I was not unsafe. So what I tell men who are looking to get to know the goddess, the all goddess, she who flows in among and around us, you have to be interested in women and women's issues, you know, like abortion access. The word vagina can't be something that you're afraid of. So what I say to men is women have to be in your vocabulary When you read the anthology, what you read is you read stories about men who are interested in women. Before we can be part, before you can draw down the moon and be embodied in the goddess, you have to be interested in women, in my opinion. And that means like getting to know Brigid's story. Gwion Raven writes this beautiful piece all about Caridwin from the perspective of knowing Caridwin. To know Caridwin, you have to know women. So the reason the anthology is accepted by women is because, is because like, they're, women are seeing, and they're not seeing men appropriating women because it's like, oh, these men are telling stories about the goddess because they're understanding women. That's where there's no patriarchy. So when I step into community with women, I'm not being seen as threatening because I am not asserting myself over. So I think sometimes when men come into goddess community and it's all women, it's being seen as a threat as opposed to like a 
um, what's the word I want to use, as a, as a seeking or as a uh, service or as a partner or as a inquiry. I spent years all by myself just seeking. So that would be one, just become interested in women and see the goddess as the girl next door. The other is in the mystery of all of the goddesses that interest you. So if you're in love with Lakshmi, invite Lakshmi into your life through ritual practice. Or if it's Kali, or if it's um, the Dark Madonna. I think where it gets complicated is that, for me, where it gets complicated is if you're a, if you have a pantheon or or a magical practice or path where goddess you know has consort with the god, then those traditions have you know a wider pantheon of behavior. You know. I don't. I'm a. I have a monastic practice, so I don't. I don't do the horn god or the blue god and stuff like that. Well, and and I appreciate that you know you were you were imploring us to take a step back um, because it helped to make sure that people remember to see the larger picture. And, and look at the larger landscape rather than getting so focused in on little narrow things that we miss what's actually there or what's actually possible because of that narrow-mindedness, narrow vision. And then we make an assumption and we shut down or we don't seek, we don't inquire versus we assume and then don't ask. Uh, which I think is probably... Is something that you would suggest is an ongoing thing through all of life is to always remain seeking um, and asking. Well, I mean, I think that when we when we stop seeking, we stop the magic. You know, when we stop seeking you know, we stop creating magic. We just become flat. And so, you know, in the book of Job, there is this question, where shall wisdom be found? Question mark. And I think that the beauty of, of pagan practice and polytheism practice and parts of Buddhism practice and Tantra practice is that we take it upon ourselves to not only find the wisdom, but to take the wisdom and put action behind it. You which, know. which I think speaks to the subtitle of the book, because yeah. it breaks out those three aspects of men in ritual, service, and community uh, to mm -hmm. the goddess. So uh, maybe you can elaborate a little bit on each aspect of those. Um, and and how you or why you broke those out and what what each of those um, mean? Sure. So the book is the book is subtitled um, "Ritual Service and Community to the Goddess," and then the interior of the book is broken up into other subsections. But what I did, 
and what I thought was really interesting is when we, in the charge of the goddess, there is um, a line that says, uh, you know, enter it, uh, enter in your heart will rejoice. And, you know, your heart will rejoice. And I thought to myself, I remember writing a blog article years ago about the, 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 about the heart that rejoices. Ritual and a heart will rejoice. And I was just like, ritual, what is ritual? So the, the book is not, although there are a few little rituals in it, the book is not about rituals. In the classical sense of like a Wiccan ritual or a fairy ritual or something. But instead, it's about the ritual of being with the goddess. So there are articles, there are writings about how men came to know goddess. And by goddess, the goddess that they were attracted to. So if you're a reader looking to learn about different goddesses, men have written about different personal relationships with deity. And it's beautiful. Christopher Penzak writes about Maka um, and uh, we have writings about um, Mary, Mother of Jesus. We have Mary Magdalene. We have Hakate. We have Kali. So it's very broad and expensive. And it's these intimate personal relationships with goddess. In the transformational form that appeared to these men in whatever ritualized way. And I found that fascinating. The service aspect of the book are men who chose to write about how goddess impacts their life in a community, in, in a service and meaningful way. How, and when I thought of service, I was thinking of like, uh, in that very sort of like dutiful, how would you like have service, like be your gift in that very like sort of Christianized way. But some of the writings were more about um, devotion and how they work or how goddess in the relationship with goddess have impacted their life. So those writings, um, you know, offered this like reflection about um, there is one in particular that speaks to how we, uh, how he is one writer, like as a gay man um, perceives himself how being in community, how being in community with goddess archetypes help him to feel more secure in himself and how he interacts with the world. And then, you know, David Oliver Kling wrote all about sort of being part of a bordered country and the service of being hospitable and how when people turned Mary away, when she was carrying Jesus, they were turning away the face of the goddess. And it's one of the most powerful things I've ever read. Um, 
so there so there are things in the in the anthology that are deeply heavy, all about the service, and then the community aspect is how are we in community with each other as brothers, fathers, sons, and other, with the goddess and other people who worship the goddess, both as men. So if we are with each other in brotherly community, but also with other women. So there are some writings about what it would be like to be, you know, in community with women who worship the goddess. So I found that also interesting. And then, you know, the big piece that, and I write about this in the introduction, is I, of course, see goddess as a man in all-encompassing, all-dwelling, and no one else did, <laughs> you know? So I wrote my big contribution, of course, is about goddess as something that is not, you know, transcendent, Kali, um, or you know, Diana, but what would it be like if we saw goddess as an all-encompassing, all-generative, all-maternal matriarchy? So that is, that's, that's what those subtitles mean. And then honoring where I come from, I subtitled individual chapters based on, um, some of my favorite feminist uh, feminist um, writings. So, you know, We All Come From the Goddess has been coined in there and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I think the, the parts uh, that you're referring to, the first one is, hear now the words of, the, of our great mother. Mm, yeah. And, <clears throat> and the second part is, uh, holy mother in who we live, move, and have our being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the third part, Hail Mary, full of grace, thou art the goddess. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth, as you said, we all come from the goddess. Um, which I think three of those are all from the charge of the goddess, aren't they? Uh, no. Uh, the first one is the charge. Um, Holy Mother, in whom we live, move, and have our being, is Victor Anderson. Victor uh, Anderson. That's right. Um, Hail Mary, full of grace, thou art the goddess, uh, is... Um, Christine Kramer. Um, and then We All Come From the Goddess is Susanna Budapest. The song. <laughs> it makes me think of the song. It's her song. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, all appropriately credited at the back of the book. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, so you, you know, when you, when you mention the all goddess, yeah. Um, and, you know, and I've, I've seen you refer in one of your blog posts, you talked about the all goddess, all earth, all earth mother. Um, and uh, I don't know if that is one aspect of the goddess that you're referring to, or if, if that's just another way of referring to the all goddess. But, you know, if we take that idea of the earth mother and how we have really lost connection with that because of in general as a society, what we're doing to the earth and and not certainly being stewards of the earth, but just taking from it what it is that we want 
um, and not with any regard for <laughs> giving back or um, replenishing. Um, what do you think has led to that disconnection and how do you think that we can move collectively towards reconnecting with, because it's interesting that you say how nobody really approached it that way and then you did that in your introduction as a result. Um, do you think there's something that we can be doing to come back into that bigger connection, bigger vision of goddess versus parsing out and then just operating in these smaller aspects? so interesting. I just had this conversation um, yesterday with a really good friend of mine. Uh, so I think part of it is to understand that we are part of a continuum. Okay? And it is, I think, really hard to get quiet and listen. And just listen. And so what I would say, I would say two things. One is, that there's not a one-size-fits-all solution. And that you don't have to believe in a one-size-fits-all theology to be of service. So just because I believe that I am the goddess, you are the goddess, everything is the goddess, and when she decides she's done, she's done. You might, be, you might be Wiccan, part of, you know, a lovely grove of Wiccans doing the, the horned god and the star goddess at Bealtaine. And that's your story. I don't know a lot about that. I don't write from that place. But that doesn't mean that, you know, one drop of your service can't realchemize the world. So I think what happens in paganism, unlike, say, Christianity, where there's one Bible, one story, one goal, one truth, boom, go. At the end of the day, everyone's trying to get to the same place. In paganism, what happens is, is that we, as a collective community, and I'm using paganism with a big P, um, get lost because there's not a single driving directive so I think to connect back in, what would it look like if you just sat under a tree? Talk to the tree. Like just talked to the tree. Good morning, tree. People think that pagans are crazy anyways. So good morning, tree. You know, like, we're going to make waste. 
we're wasteful people. Even when I try not to make waste, I make waste. We're going to make waste. But maybe we make a little bit less waste. One drop into humanity's giant well realchemizes the world. Just one drop less. I think that's part of the solution. I also think that, you know, how many, this is going to sound a little crazy, but how many people listening to this podcast today have had a Reiki attunement, an IET attunement, a Lomi attunement, some sort of energy work? A tune-up right now and go put your hands on a tree. So I think that's part of it. I think the other part is to mobilize and use voice and action at the poll, locally, see what your recycling looks like, and be active. I recently discovered, and I would have never known this, that like in the city of Philadelphia where I live, I have my big blue bin. I put my blue bin out. Well, I recently found out that certain things that I've always thought were recyclable are not. And that if 45% of the recycling truck is contaminated, that my entire truck goes to the landfill. And I was like, great. So now when I walk home from work, I look at people's recycling truck on trucks tonight, and I'm like, wow. I just found out that the cliff bar recycling is not really recyclable because it's lined in a foil. And I'm like, great. So who knew? So I think part of it is education. Part of it is just tuning in and using our gifts as magic makers to heal heal what is around us. And also becoming comfortable with the fact that, like, Earth is going to keep turning, whether we're on it or not. So I believe that we are born on the exhale of the goddess and that we return to her on her inhale. So at some point, she might just decide she's done. Just getting comfortable with that. And I know that's scary, but it's also awesomely amazing. It's as awesomely amazing on the other side of the spectrum of like awesomely amazing. The things that create are also the things that destroy. Alone, awesome, and complete within herself, God is turned into her own reflection and created all. Alone, awesome, and complete within herself, God is turned into herself and decided she was done. So that's sort of my thought on that. Um, and I think something that you even started with in that um, is what I have recently had discussions with people about something that we seem to have completely lost the ability for is stillness. Yeah. Nobody seems to ever stop. Nobody ever seems to not be connected. And I don't mean connected in terms of like connected to people in the web of things, but I mean connected in terms of electronics and screens and everything. You know, and everybody is always uh, using the phrase that I just don't have time for that, you know. And if you even if I think about people doing rituals, 
-hmm. People spend so much time looking up and trying to figure out what they need to be doing. What offerings do I need to give? What do I need to say? And then they craft these rituals where it's nothing but all sorts of things going on and actions they need to do and things that have to be said and do this after this and light that and everything else. But there's never that stillness. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like create the space, but then actually sit in the space rather than be doing lots of stuff in the space and then taking the space away and then not having had that chance for the stillness to come in. And to me, that's one of the hallmark characteristics of the goddess is the experience of stillness when you have a when you experience the goddess you experience stillness and that's scary you know i mean that can be very scary for people like so ritual and all of the accoutrement and gosh i love accoutrement um can be is 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 doing is action oriented you know but when we sit and you know i love a practice so here's a practice everyone go to your favorite store buy your favorite smelly candle not for the bathroom light it take a seat enjoy its smell and just sit just sit and chant put on a nice song not bang bang everyone but a different one and have a moment in in the presence of the smell of that candle, your breath, and be, be in the ritual of your body. Because ultimately, when all is said and done, and this is the part that I think is really important, both, you know, you hear, you read it in the anthology, you read it in other books, and it's consistent, I think, in every, every piece of, of, deep goddess-centered work. The body is the vessel of goddess. So regardless of, of where, where you fall spiritually, like we'll take, um, we'll take like a, the horn god comes and goes in the wheel of the year. He comes and goes. The goddess stays indwelling, always there. And I think that's really important. So when you can get real still, and when you get real still, the goings-on in the world become less threatening. You don't necessarily need a, a love spell to fix your issue. You don't necessarily need a complex ritual because the ritual becomes part of your practice because you become the ritual. And that comes back to the title in the book. What the men wrote about was their ritual with themselves and goddess. Whomever and however that goddess appeared to them, which is why when people would ask me, what goddess do you want me to write about I didn't have an answer. I said, whatever goddess you want. And because I see goddess as everything and all things, when I write about goddess, I very rarely write about a specific face of the goddess. I just write about goddess. 
And I let people give that goddess a name. And these days, I simply, like I recently taught, I simply say, peaceful goddess. And I let everyone else give that archetype or that uh, more more characteristics. Peaceful goddess can be, you know, Kuan Yin, White Tara. Wrathful goddess can be the Morgan, Kali, Pali. And I just, but when you begin to live it in your body, you are the wrathful goddess when your child has been taken from you, when your right to self-determination has been taken from you. Men and women experience peaceful goddess. They experience wrathful goddess. They experience all of this because we are this. You are this. So it makes me curious. I think mm-hmm. that you you came to discovering working with the goddess a little over twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, in that time to today, I'm I'm just curious. And when you mentioned, you know, how you will now just say the peaceful goddess, how has your connection, understanding, vision? paradigm of the goddess shifted and evolved over time from then to now? If you were writing a letter to yourself 20 years ago and saying, well, let me tell you, this is now my relationship experience, understanding of the goddess, what would you say to that person 20 years ago? Um, I, I think I would say a couple of things. One is, uh, you'll still be alone in her presence, even when you're popular. That would be one. Two, um, what you believe is wider than paganism, polytheism, Buddhism, Christianity. Like there's no name for it. What you know has no name. Well, I might not tell myself that because I needed, I needed to go to Buddhism. I needed to go to reclaiming. I needed to like hang out with fairy. I needed to do all of that. But at the end... I don't belong in any of those places by myself. Like I don't, those places are fun to like go be with for a weekend and like be there. But at the end of the day, I'm still alone with the goddess because what I think I've come to realize is I'm, I'm the goddess. Like that's what I always say to myself. When all is said and done, the message I would give back to myself is, you're the goddess. 
The goddess is alive and in you. She's not abstract from you. She's not like, she's not the God of Abraham up in the sky. Looking down at you, you've not done anything wrong. You don't sit and say the Holy, Mar- the Holy Mother prayer over and over again. There's no penance. She's living and breathing. Come sit by me, the rock, the river, the tree. Hosts to history's long departed. I am the rock, the river, the tree. Like, that's what I would tell myself. Like, the goddess is, is you, is everything. And when you come to believe that, really believe that, and really know that, and trust me, there are days I don't believe that, believe that and know that, but when you come to, to like live that and make that your practice or try to, you know, you are mindful of, like, what you throw away in the trash. You're not voting to strip women of their rights to reproductive health because you realize it's none of your, none of your business. You know, you are empowering people's right to self-determination. Like, your, so your worldview changes. And so that's what I would tell myself. The other thing I think I would tell myself is um, men will not like you anymore in the same way. So patriarchy will attack you and you will be seen as sort of their enemy. And you'll lose friends. And that will hurt. But it will be okay. So what I've learned in the last couple of years is that as a man, when you are, you know, to use a Christian expression, washed in the goddess, you know, when you're the goddess guy, some men do not understand what that's all about. They look at the books you've written. Even pagan men are like, especially those who don't quite get it, they're like, I don't get it. I don't get it. It's also, I think the other thing I would tell myself is it's okay not to dig the horned God and that whole story. It doesn't have to be your truth. Don't try to make it your truth. It's just going to confuse you, upset you, annoy you, and leave you frustrated. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that was a lot. (laughs) Well, that's all right. Um, So... I think that my my final question is really going to tie into how at the end of each conversation I have a, a question from a previous guest, as well as we'll ask you for a question to pose for a previous, I mean, a future guest to respond to. Um, and, you know, now that this book is out, um, I wanted to ask about what projects and things you have going on and make sure that you um, let people know where they can both find you as well as find the book. I know it's on Amazon. I don't know if there are other places as well. Um, and tied into that is the question from a previous guest, which is what seeds are you planting now that you will harvest in the fall?
I am currently, so I just finished teaching a workshop to a large audience of people, women, called Wisdom of the Heart. And it was not geared towards pagans. It was geared towards the general population. All about empowerment and empowering women and men um, using the goddess. And the idea of the goddess as indwelling. You know, you are the goddess. Here, are, here is peaceful goddess. Here is wrathful goddess. Here is loving goddess. Like, here, here it is. And it was wildly successful, and people had a fantastic time. And so I am planting the seeds now to unveil that again in the fall. Um, and I will probably take that to wider populations and potentially turn that into a curriculum so that I'm not the only person teaching that. Because I think that there's a toolkit there that needs to be taught, both wider than myself, that other women could teach women, men could teach men, using um, the goddess. Because here's the deal, I see. People need to heal, heal and reveal. Patriarchy has done its damnedest to, to humankind and to the earth. And there comes a point where myself, you know, my beloved colleague Rabbit, uh, Crystal Blanton, people that I really care about are out there doing the work. And so service is part of our gift. So I see myself, you know, in the fall taking wisdom of the heart to a wider audience. And it'll be wider than paganism, the pagan community, because it's really geared to the general population. Um, so that's, that's what I'm doing. And, uh, also continuing to teach people how to just sit and get quiet with themselves, which is always a blessing and a challenge, but something that I enjoy doing. And where is it that people can a find the book, um, and also find your presence, uh, online, um, and if they want to get in touch with you or see other things that you have going on, keep up with the different things you're offering. So the book can, of course, be bought at Amazon.com. It can also be bought at ImanianPress.com. Imanian is the publisher of the book, and they've been wonderful to me. So um, I would ask everyone to buy it through Imanian. Um but you can always get it through Amazon. You can get it through Barnes & Noble as well. It's at all major book sellers. Um, you can also get the book at your local um, pagan bookstore. So if you have a local independent seller, order the book through them because it supports local sellers. So if you're on the West Coast, Mystic Dream has it. Sacred Well has it. If you're on the East Coast, um, Hex has it. I would just love to see local sellers who are carrying the book, you know, be supported. <clears throat> I can be found at ericdupree.com, and that has my teaching schedule on it. And I write every six weeks at the Wild Hunt. So um, you can always find my latest uh, inspirational uh, non-news. I don't write the news. Um, 
for the wild hunt. I write inspiration and spirits. You can find me there. And then, um, but my, my website has, uh, what I'm doing and my most recent writing, uh, is also there. So you can find me there as well. Excellent. And I just want to let people know, um, your name is spelled E-R-I-C-K-D-U-P-R-E-E. So for ericdupree.com, make sure you have the K in there. And the name of the book is Finding the Masculine in Goddesses Spiral, Men in Ritual, Service, and Community to the Goddess. Well, Eric Dupree, thank you very much for spending time sharing, enlightening, expanding our awareness and our connection to the goddess and hopefully stimulating people to perhaps broaden their willingness to be in stillness and see what the goddess is for them uh, rather than to put it into a little box and think of it in a, a much more limited way. So thank you very much for having taken time to to be here today and to share this with us. Stay tuned and get your favorite note-taking apparatus ready because coming up next is our monthly astrology update with Prometheus where you'll want to make sure to take note of your sign or signs of what's going on, what's coming up, and how to best navigate through the coming months. You're listening to Revolution. My name is Hi C. We'll be right back. Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with Heisey. Enjoy the show. Greetings, Space Cadets, and welcome to May. And another one of my wonderful reports. (laughs) This one this month is going to be called Inversion Layer. May is the month in which Mars and Venus get equal time. Venus, our lady of love, becomes the inspiration for this month's post. And it is Apropos, as one of the big Venusian Sabbaths in the witch calendar falls on May 1st, where the May Queen is honored, known as Beltane. Additionally symbolic is that Venus is also one of the closest planets to us in terms of astronomical distance and and distant candidate for possible terraforming when the technology becomes available. Which, of course, naturally leads to the fact that six planets will be in retrograde through the month of May, an event that happens every 10 years or so. It seems a great deal of the energy will be turning inward for a period of review and revision, which is actually an important part of any developmental process, including the evolution of the world's cultural system. 
If prophecy is merely a device used to envision possible futures, which then become the visionary impetus for action in the world, then this is a perfect opportunity to look at our collective narrative and examine if it is serving our ultimate aim of thriving as a species on a finite planet. Perhaps the retrograde serve as a potent metaphor for a much-needed review and possible course correction. If nothing else, it is the ideal way to utilize them. All that said, it may explain why the signs may not be as vigorous as usual. Many of them are turning in on themselves and evaluating their respective symbol sets. We'll start with Aries. You are Pioneer Venus. Aries faces an interesting paradox this month as Mars makes a retrograde motion towards the sign opposite you on the sky disk, which in this case is Libra. Aries' usual fearlessness and bold approach finds itself somewhat frustrated during this period as it is difficult to connect with the outward motion the sign is characteristic for. It will bring to the fore political questions pertaining to autonomy and personal liberty and their relationship to overall civil society. As it currently stands, the social contract is in rapid decline and elites are attempting to create liberty and autonomy for corporations and governments that serve their ends at the expense of our civil liberties which could lead to unrest and a very uncivil society. The pertinent question for Aries in this retrograde transit are, what are the balance points between social responsibility, a need for action, and of course the extent to which people have autonomy and liberty in their own lives? And if a certain amount of autonomy has to be sacrificed to ensure collective liberty for all individuals. Further, the deeper questions will pertain to your own power to act in your life and where respecting the liberty of others falls. It, it means that we won't always get everything and we are not always on top. And that's a hard sell for Aries. But as far as retrogrades go, it allows for a deeper probing and a more nuanced relationship of what freedom is in the personal and political sense. It also invites the idea that there are others we must take individual responsibility for. And that the fate of societies rests with understanding both our autonomy to act and our social obligations in creating a just and fair society. Taurus, you are Aphrodite Terra. Taurus, which is the true sex fiend of the zodiac, its opposing sign Scorpio has for a long time taken this rightful title. It is the bulls that have the angle on the field of human sexuality. Venus, your ruling planet, is also particularly well placed this month as it is not experiencing retrograde motion. Taurus gets to come out and play burning off the heaviness of the last year and the purifying fires of the Beltane season. Taurus also correlates to finance, which is a huge component of workers' rights, and there are movements afoot all over the world to support wage increases for service workers, not to mention numerous pilot projects explicating a universal basic income, and in some circles, fervent talk of cryptocurrency, think Bitcoin, and resource-based economies. More important for those Taurians politically inclined, now would be a great time to get involved with the cutting edge of gender and sex politics. As genetic sisters of the sexual revolution, Tauruses are particularly well-placed to understand that pleasure and sexuality are not merely the way a species perpetuates itself, but are instinctual forces which adhere human societies together into mutual aid. Taurus is an equal opportunity slut and does not care one whip about distinctions of gender, sex, or race, and is far more interested in maximizing mutual pleasure than quibbling over insignificant details. It is a month where the bulls get to play and be fully outwardly expressive. It's a good time to let your hair down and play. 
It allows new life to be breathed into movements which have been blunted by macroeconomic fuckery by financial elites. Which naturally brings us to Gemini, and you are twin planets. Venus is Earth's wilder and more volatile twin, and often referred to as the twin planet. You, who are the epitome of the twin archetype, often tussle with an inner conflict between the more hospitable Terran twin and the more wild Venusian one. Further, you are also up against the tide of a ruling planet in inverse relationship, which changes your internal polarity so that the darker twin is favored. That is to say, the one that fearlessly delves into the unknown territories of inner space, your own private underworld. It seems that is exactly what is being powered at this juncture. The more hermetic, hermit-like, and inward-seeking twin is dominating and attempting to unwind all of your confidential unknowns. You may feel less verbal and social than normal for a Gemini, which may have others around you concerned, and perhaps panicked. But no worries, you are feeling like a hermit these days, carefully observing your depth, something that the other side of yourself is typically not comfortable doing. With the retrograde through Aries, the penetration is energetic and has you looking at the areas in your life where you question what level of autonomy and liberty you can take and how you might be constrained by social expectations. It's a sort of Jekyll and Hyde paradox in that part of you is outwardly respectable and socially palatable while just under the surface is an insatiably lusty, taboo-breaking freedom fighter fighting for its ascendancy. There are two ways to respond to this inversion layer. One is to be filled with dread, as it might mean you spend some evenings in with very good wine, and that a holy terror is mucking about the underlayers of your psyche, or you can grab the popcorn and sit down for a great show and enjoy the silence, something all the air signs struggle with which naturally brings us to Cancer, you are Venus of Amisadakua. The Amisadakua was an ancient piece of astronomy which faithfully tracked the motions of Venus in the sky in her helical arc, risings and settings as recorded using lunar dates and tracked for 21 years. The text was part of a greater Babylonian text that dealt with astrology and the attaching of omens to celestial motions. These natural risings and followings certainly respond well with the tidal nature of cancer, which is uniquely sensitive to the urges and poles of life. The reason these tidal energies are emerging is that cancer is holding a difficult paradox. Cancer is sensitive to the retrograde tide dominating much of 2016 as in contemplating what this might mean. Cancer, as the archetype which originates, protects, and preserves life, has it out for it. That one element of life, human, is proving to be a cancer to the rest of life on Earth is, di is a difficult reality to hold. There is a necessary desire to protect human life as well as life in general. Cancer, your task is to figure out the course we can be on to strike a balance with the collective of life on the planet. Our technology can be pressed into the service of life and humanity. It will mean we must reconnect with the ancient inextricable link that we have with life and mimic its ways. Cancer, you may have a strong involvement in directing technology in the mimicry of nature and also a biosphere. On a more personal level, you are called to protect and preserve the life systems in your environment and reorient as best as you can your life stores, lifestyle 
to better accord with life. If it means you drive a great deal less and use the bicycle more, every action counts. Which brings us to Leo. You are superior conjunction. Leos are doing major shadow work. With Jupiter moving retrograde, its natives may be deeply questioning assumed Leonine identity. Leo holds the archetype of elite power and the monarchy. That said inversely, inversely, it also holds the shadow energy of that, which is the idea that all of us can be monarchs of our own flesh and can be at the helm of our own destiny, provided the world has mechanisms in place that allow for it. Leo, you are encouraged now with Jupiter about to finish its grand tour moving backwards to step up to the helm and become the leaders and voices of these burgeoning movements for equality and fairness and an understanding that power, like wealth, is a shared asset belonging to the commons and not to a small slice of humanity. Leo becomes the voice that calls out this disconnect and points out that, these version, that this version of leadership does not work and that elites are not the only ones who have a say in a trajectory of the future. Leo, you do not have to be an example of all that is wrong with figureheads. You can become the model of what goes right with inspired leadership that realizes there is more power when it is shared and diffused. Which naturally leads us to Virgo. You are Magellan Radar. Virgo, since you are a goddess in the clothes of the proletariat, you've lived your life by a simple philosophy. Work hard, play hard. You're also driven by a service-forward ethic, which is noble. What you are learning in the current world trajectory is that there's a thin line between service and servitude. And if you're finding that increasing chunks of your life are devoted to work and play is taking a back seat, then you may be overdoing it. In a word, Virgo, this Mercury retrograde period is best served by stepping back and reclaiming some of your lost autonomy. Being of service is undeniably a noble sentiment, but when it crosses that thin red line and becomes servitude, you have to step back and reassess. Virgo may have been spinning its wheels the last few months, uh, rushing, and it is now taking its toll on your nervous system. You're running only on epinephrine, and it is burning you out biologically. May is a time now to step back into your integrity, pull away from the demands, even if only for five minutes, and take a pause. Review and revise and figure out if the trajectory you're on is truly reflective of your autonomous vision. If not, it may be time to consider a course correction and a realignment with the principles that bring you to your virgin namesake, that of being complete in and of yourself, which is to say self-contained and self-possessed. If increasingly your life belongs more to the demands of others, it may be time to pull back and draw some perimeters where angels fear to tread. Which brings us to Libra, and you are Akatsuki Transmission. Libra is naturally a diplomat, softening the sometimes rough, rough edges of its sister sign, Scorpio, which is to say that Libra is the cloth covering the throbbing erection of Scorpio, or as I like to think of it, the goddess Kali and a pencil skirt. Libra may be finding it harder to be the pencil skirt version and instead is leaning towards the other side of its polarity the stance of Nemesis the Avenger. In one hand, justice holds the scale, in the other is the sword, and she is blinded by the blindfold on her eyes. All the terms of the alleged social contract are up for review under these transits, 
and there may be a fight, whether hashed out in the halls of justice or public opinion. It's not difficult to be uproariously outraged by the uncivility of our so-called global civil societies, the rampant inefficiency and waste in the handling of our shared resources, the profound corruption of our political system by plutocrats who are seeking only to entrench their bottom lines at the expense of the commons that underpins their wealth, and finally, the glacial pace at which authorities entrusted with collective well-being are responding to a number of converging crises. Technological upheaval, economic chaos, and climate change. Given this, it should hardly be surprising that Libra is feeling less than diplomatic. Relations are strained as Libra wants more autonomy and the capacity to act, which is the definition of power and liberty. In a set of cultural circumstances that constrain and resign us to selling our time for money, even in a context of abundance and productivity. I advise that Libra not squelch the sense of outrage, but channel it to something useful instead. Art and writing is always a great choice, but if you have no knack for either, then whatever you're good at is best. The anger can be attuned into, ang into action. Be deliberate. Scorpio, you are the Mariner Probe. Scorpio is known to be ruthless, a secret agent with a deceptively friendly smile, not to mention being a holder of dark secrets. It is a misnomer, as Scorpio is actually simply purifying the dross in an existential act of alchemy and attempting to, to purify the soul of humanity by draining it of self-generated toxins. Scorpio is experiencing a double dram of retrograde energy with both its ruler and co-ruler in regressive motion. <clears throat> the normally forward-moving energy of Scorpio is delayed, and the Scorpions may find themselves frustrated at the resistance the world shows to meaningful change. Scorpio is hair-triggered this month and ready to, to dispense with any person, system, or institution that is preventing human progress. And not the ersatz progress of economic dominance, but the real progress of species maturity. I would advise that you don't act to hate too hastily and throw the baby out with the bathwater. While it may feel the whole world is working against evolutionary movement, it may just be your perceptions are limited by the fact that you are light years ahead and the world is lagging and stuck on a futile frequency. I advise that the course of action is to avoid the caustic solution of simply cutting away the baggage, but instead to engage with the frustrating and slow process of global evolution, and perhaps you might just provide the world with a few useful razors to cut the bag to cut out uh, cut away the policies of extinction and usher in a new eon. If not, you will certainly blow them away and shock them in the most exciting way by infiltrating past their internal firewalls and getting under their skin in your decidedly penetrating fashion. If you have to resort to subterfuge, be very deliberate about it, and of course, cover your tracks. Sagittarius, you are the Venera landing. The archers of planet Earth are undergoing a tremendous journey of soul-searching with your planetary ruler in retrograde motion and the evolutionary catalyst of Pluto moving through your sign in backward motion. Sagittarius may find themselves examining the conflicted perceptions that humanity is currently experiencing. 
There is a collective violation of established realities and social subroutines that is proving difficult for many of us to navigate through. The Sagittarian mind is witnessing this great turning directly and acutely, and it can be at times paralyzing. Ultimately, Sagittarius must vehemently avoid a natural tendency towards finality. It is too soon for dense conclusions. At current, the precise affect of holding soft perimeters and avoiding rapid paradigmatic leaps. Instead, there has to be a careful investigation of the tides of violent opposition that is defining much of humanity at current. A careful analysis of the conflicting models of reality all conscious agents are using to define reality. In truth, Sagittarius secretly knows that reality is a fabrication of the mind, but for now, the archer must hold the expansive view of relativity. Or quite simply, that no single agent is wrong given their model of the world. It's too soon to call which trajectory human, humanity has locked into. There is still a spaciousness for us to decide. Capricorn, you are Ishtar Regu. It can seem of late that Capricorn is stuck in a recursive loop. At the personal level, it feels like you keep repeating the same series of actions in hopes of a different outcome, and also it seems that it gets you nowhere. Largely, this is a signal from the universe that you cannot avoid what is meant to be versed from these experiences. In a word, they keep repeating because there has not been a requisite shift in the consciousness that continues to create the complications. What all this is meant to compel us is to take the stance that you need to learn from the past and stop living in it. Raise the bar to a new perception, one in which you can look at old patterns or old problems from another angle and see the solution hiding in the fractals of recursive history. Unless, of course, you'd like to keep hanging your bed again. Unless, of course, you would like to keep banging your head against the wall. It will, however, not relieve the pressure. <laughs> Which brings us to Aquarius. You are mutual inversion. An interesting nexus point. The water bearer finds themselves in this month as both their ruling planet of Uranus and Neptune transiting Aquarius find themselves in mutual reception and both in retrograde motion. It means that there's a flip in the signs polarities and the normally outwardly focused Aquarian has now put themselves under the microscope. Individually, it means that the water bearer is course correcting. There's a tendency towards seclusion as Aquarius is regenerating and refining itself. Aquarius is essentially reviewing visions of the future. While there is a groundswell of movements working towards paradise, we're still going to have to contend with some difficult transitions and upheavals. Aquarius, as the holder of the archetype of the future, you must remember one simple directive. Apocalypse is the easy way out and requires no effort. Apotheosis requires every ounce of strength, fortitude, effort, genius, intuition, and intelligence. It might require more elbow grease, but it beats extinction any day. Use this retrograde period to figure out how we can all course correct and get back on track to a more sustainable future. Pisces, you are the Venusians. Pisces, like your Aquarius brothers and sisters, you are experiencing the effects of a retrograde polarity inversion in mutual reception. 
Granted, Pisces, your concerns have little to do with confronting the terrors of the future and a great deal more to being sensitized to the plight of the suffering masses. Naturally compassionate, you may find yourself feeling profoundly overwhelmed at the intensity of your emotions and empathic responses when presented with collective struggle. This is possibly your best trait, that no matter how high the frequency of ridiculousness becomes, you are capable of remaining tender-hearted and demonstrate the fortitude and courage it takes to care in a sometimes heartless world. That said, Pisces, you do need to take some time out and channel these intense feelings into creative outlets, whether that is direct action activism or something decidedly more Burning Man-inspired. Let may be a nexus in space-time where you can play with your imagination and funnel your inner intensities into a worthwhile project that can hopefully shift the vector of humanity towards course correction. You have the unique capacity for having your finger on the pulse of humanity and seeing the larger picture forces that shape human destinies, and you have the unique imaginative capacity to come up with alternatives. It had to have been a Pisces who coined the term, another world is possible. In any case, it is your clarion call. Well, that's a wrap, Cosmonauts. Please join me next month, June. Uh, Same bat channel, same bat time. If you'd like to learn more or check out a couple, uh, a summary of May's uh, aspects, planetary aspects uh, by date and event, please be sure to check out my blog at flyingpunkrockunicorn.com Again, that's flyingpunkrockunicorn.com I have a link available on my blog to an article I wrote discussing the six planets that will be in retrograde. You can also find me on Facebook at Prometheus Jones, the Astrologer, and also at The Sidereolist. That's www.thesidereolist. S-I-D-E R-E-A-L-I-S-T dot com then look for the tab marked Prometheus have a good one folks keep your eyes on the skies Once again, for the revolution, my name is Hi C, and it's been my pleasure to be your host. If you'd like to find out more about me and my offerings as a tarot reader, ritualist, and magic consultant, you can visit my website at tarotbyhighc.net, or you can send an email to highc at tarotbyhighc.net. Revolution airs the second Sunday of each month, and you can find episodes of any past show here on the Blog Talk archives or on iTunes. I look forward to being with you again next month, and I hope you will join the revolution on Sunday, the 12th of June. Until then, may blessings surprise you around every corner. We're gonna fly.